This morning we'll be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, coming back to the conflict that is occurring between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and the Herodians tried to take a swipe at him, and now it's the Sadducees that come. In this passage, we see Jesus contending for the faith. Follow along with me, please, as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to receive the nourishment of your word today, that you would help us to have hungry and humble hearts before you, that we would learn, that we would be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection, that we would be instructed by how you, Lord, dealt with antagonists that that hid their hypocrisy through a fake assumption that they actually wanted to learn something. Lord, we too face those moments, those types of people. And we confess that it can be very difficult to know how to deal with them. We confess that we can sometimes be tempted to be unsure, to lack confidence. But we pray, O Lord, that your example would give us confidence that you would remind us that as your people, you are with us, that you have filled us with your spirit. You have given us your scriptures. We have everything we need for life and godliness. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would help us, give us strength to take up the sword of your word when and where necessary in order to defend the faith and in order to highlight the character of God and to teach the hope that the saints have. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Triage. If you have been to the emergency room, for instance, you are familiar with triage. Before I had ever gone to the emergency room, I was first introduced to triage while I was in the army. For some reason, probably because I was a newbie, they decided that before we would deploy to Iraq, they needed a few of us to be what the army calls combat lifesavers, who are basically just the guys who are supposed to try to keep you alive long enough for the medics to get to you who actually know what they're doing. And so as I went through the class and became a certified combat lifesaver, I learned what triage is. Because on the battlefield or in the emergency room, you have all types of emergencies, some actual and some imagined, as any good ER nurse or doctor or tech will tell you which is why so many people are left in the waiting room for so long. Stubbed toes are not emergencies. 
but I digress. You have all kinds of emergencies coming to you, or perceived emergencies at least, and so we need a way to be able to assess the situation, to assess the patient, and then to be able to, based upon that assessment, put them into a category of urgency, either very urgent or not quite so urgent. What is a life-threatening issue, and what's an issue that needs to be addressed but can wait a while to be addressed? That's what triage is. Well, in the last several years, that may have been invented before then, there has been a concept, a very helpful concept developed within the Christian church known as theological triage. Theological triage. It's a an attempt to help us to understand what are primary issues, what are secondary issues, and what may even be tertiary issues. What are things that are most important to the Christian faith, and what are the other things that are still important, yet not quite on the level of the gospel itself? So you think, for instance, of the perceived mode of baptism. Are you supposed to baptize babies as covenant family members? Or do you baptize someone based upon their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you and I know the right answer to that, but our Presbyterian brothers don't. That's a joke, right? I joke about that with my Presbyterian brothers all the time. They give it right back. Don't worry. We understand that based upon our interpretation of the scriptures, as we look at it all throughout the book of Acts, for instance, people were baptized based on their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a primary issue. We may not go to church with someone who believes that infants should be baptized in order to become covenant members of the family, distinct from saving faith. We may not go to the same church as them, though we actually may. My brother is a Baptist who goes to a Presbyterian church, and he sticks out like a sore thumb, mostly because he's a giant, but also because they know that he's a Baptist. So we may not go to the same church, though we may go to the same church, but we will share a space in heaven together. Just because someone believes something differently than uh, maybe they should believe on baptism doesn't mean they're not going to get into heaven. But then there are issues that do mean someone will not get into heaven. That do mean that not only will we not go to church with someone, we won't fellowship with them in any type of way. The resurrection is one of those primary issues. The resurrection is the main issue at hand here as the Sadducees now try to take a swing at Jesus. And they they disguise their hypocrisy by coming to him pretending to actually be interested in the answer to the question. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you perhaps have also met an antagonistic person who has done something similar to this. Someone who pretended like they were interested in the answer that you had to their question when really all they were trying to do was make you look like a fool, the fool that they thought you were. Now that can work sometimes with us, but it cannot work with Jesus. As the Sadducees now come to him and try to undermine his character, try to make him look like a fool, as the Sanhedrin continues to challenge the authority of Jesus, they come to him and they pose to him what was probably a question and a scenario that they loved to throw out to people. They, we have historical accounts of the Sadducees and the Pharisees always at each other's throats most especially about the doctrine of the resurrection. Most Jews in Jesus' day believed in the resurrection, 
Bob read one passage, Isaiah 26, verse 19, that highlights the resurrection from the Old Testament. It is actually an Old Testament teaching. It was believed even by Job himself. Yet there was one small sect of Judaism called the Sadducees that did not believe in the resurrection. Not only did they not believe in the resurrection, they also did not believe in angels or demons. They also did not believe in any type of spirit whatsoever. They believed that when you die, that's it. Which was why they were part of the ruling class who was the most wealthy class. Because if this is all you get, then you better make the most of it. And so Jesus takes on the Sadducees, and they ask him a question, but you'll notice that Jesus' response to their question is not a response that is, uh, you know, pulling any punches. Jesus' response to their question is a response to them, to their antagonism. If someone were to come and genuinely ask a question, to be teachable, to be humble, to sincerely want to know an answer from Jesus, he wouldn't speak to them this way. But these hypocrites don't want to know the answer to their question. These hypocrites want to undermine Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you'll face the same thing as you try to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that this passage is helpful to us to see that Jesus was the very first one who contended for the faith. And it gives us instructions in our contending for the faith. And so the passage really breaks down in in two main parts. We have the question and we have the answer. And so let's look at it that way and let's see what we can determine and, and learn first from the antagonists and then from Jesus himself. So first of all, in verses 18 to 23, we see the antagonistic question. The antagonistic question. Verse 18, Mark tells us that at at the conclusion of his conversation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees came to him. And Matthew makes this really clear. As soon as that conversation ended in the same day, the Sadducees now come. The Sadducees came to him, and Mark wants us to understand before we hear what the question is, that the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. He wants us to have that in our minds so that we can understand that when they ask this question which pertains to the resurrection, they have no interest in the answer to the question. They didn't care about the resurrection. Why? Because to them, it was silly. It was foolish. And this is probably why, if you remember from Sunday school, they were sad, you see. Yeah, that's a good one, huh? They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. But they were not only just sad. Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually tells us that the Sadducees were marked by just being nasty men. Josephus says even amongst themselves, they were, he compares them to wild beasts. They were bitter, they were mean, they were cruel, and at this point, they really controlled what was going on in the temple. So that after the temple's destruction in 70 AD, the Sadducees were done. We have almost nothing that tells us very much about the Sadducees, except what the scriptures tell us and what Josephus tells us and a few other documents. The Sadducees were done once the temple was done. They thought this was their temple. But Jesus has another thing for them. So they come and they say there's no, or they come and they, and Mark wants us to know that there's no resurrection. This was not the end of this controversy. You fast forward into the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and you go toward the end of the book of Acts after he's arrested in Jerusalem, and he's put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul, who was no dummy, 
understood as he looked out on the council, that the council, the Sanhedrin, was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this is what Paul said in Acts 23, verses 6 to 8. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul says, okay, you want to put me on trial? I'm going to throw a wrench in your whole thing, and I'm going to say, first of all, I'm a Pharisee, and my family line is from the Pharisees, and the reason why I'm on trial here is concerning the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as he said that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees began to argue with each other. And that was really it then. Paul didn't really need to marry. I mean, it goes on, but they divided amongst themselves. So this was a hot button issue. And you'll notice that they've teamed up with the Pharisees, who they argue with later on, and in fact, who they had always argued with, which is just another reminder to us that Jesus unites. He unites together those who love him, And he unites those who hate him together in opposition to him. Their hatred for Jesus outweighed their theological positions. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees could say, I know we sharply disagree on the resurrection, but let's put that down for a moment because we both hate Jesus and we both want to get rid of him. And so they come to Jesus and verse 19 says, the rest of verse 18, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, once again, they acknowledge him as a teacher and they present, present this fake idea of honor, teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they state the principle and notice who it is that they cite. They cite Moses. Another significant thing that we need to understand about the Sadducees was that Moses was the only one that they acknowledged. To them, the Bible was made up only of the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah. They did not acknowledge the prophets. They did not acknowledge the writings, the history and the Psalms. And so, for instance, Isaiah 26, 19 If someone would have tried to say, well, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says this, they would have said, Isaiah's not the Bible. You find it in Moses and then we'll believe you. And it seems so far no one has been able to find the doctrine of the resurrection in Moses until Jesus shows up. So they present to him what's called Leverite marriage. This was the concept in the Old Testament that made sure that when Uh, a husband died without bearing a son that the family inheritance stayed within the family. In order to do that, if a wife's husband died without bearing any children, a son specifically, then the wife was given next in line to the brother-in-law so that the brother-in-law could get her pregnant and have a son to give the inheritance to. It sounds really weird to us. But this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So it was all about the inheritance of the land for the family specifically. What was Israel's inheritance from God? It was the promised land. And so it was crucial that they keep that inheritance. And this is the issue in the book of Ruth. Why was Naomi so insistent that Ruth go after Boaz? 
because Boaz was next in line. Because if she didn't, then their family name was done for. And so let me continue. Deuteronomy 25, 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Which if you go into a gift shop is not usually a very popular sign to hang above your door, right? The house of him whose sandal has been pulled off. It was a shameful thing. God's law required that a brother-in-law perform that duty, he calls it a duty, in order to continue the name of his dead brother. And it was so important that God would shame the one who refused to do it, and they would be ashamed in the whole community. Everyone would know that's a dishonorable man who does not obey the Lord. And so that's the principle that they're bringing up to Jesus. It was very, very important for Israel. So they bring up the principle, and then they give him this hypothetical scenario. It's a scenario that that mimics something you can read in the apocryphal book of Tobit, though I don't really recommend it. There's a, a wife who marries, and then a demon, before the marriage can be consummated, chokes and kills the husband seven different times until finally the eighth husband uh, prays and fights off the demon and is able to continue the family line. You'll know why it didn't actually make it in the Bible. It's weird. It's like Stephen King wrote it or something like that. So it could be that they're citing that you know, sort of well-known story, but it's probably more so that they made up this scenario and they think they've got an airtight case for the lunacy of the resurrection. Because if the dead are raised in the very same way, then this situation is going to make for some very awkward family photos in heaven. One wife, one wife, seven husbands, like do they take turns one at a time? Do they all get together in the same picture? How do you do that? And so it's a ridiculous scenario that they pose to Jesus. They say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, left no offspring. So what does the law of Leverite marriage say? Leverite means brother-in-law, by the way. What does the law of Leverite brother-in-law marriage say? Well, it says that the brother now has to marry that widow. So he does, verse 21. And the second took her. And he died, leaving no offspring. Well, now the third brother has to fulfill his duty and step into the line. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So you've got this scenario where seven different men have married this woman and she alone survived. Call it a miracle. Call it, you know, maybe putting something in their food. I don't know what the reason was, but somehow this lady survived past all of those men until she finally died, which was probably a relief to her. So there it is, Jesus. Then verse 23, they finally get to the question, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You'll notice what Mark told us about the Sadducees, right? Now, certainly Jesus knew, everybody knew about the Sadducees. Everyone knew that they did not believe in the resurrection. But where does the question focus? It focuses on the resurrection. You think they really want to know the answer to this question? They don't care about the answer to this question. They think there is no answer to this question. And so instead of coming to Jesus with a humble heart, 
instead of actually seeking the truth, all they're trying to do is continue their lie through their hypocrisy. They conceal their hypocrisy by their question asking as if Jesus was really supposed to believe they wanted to know the answer to their question. You and I will face situations like that. In fact, if you've been a Christian for very long, you probably have faced situations like that. Someone comes up to you and they present to you a hypothetical scenario. You know, if, if God is powerful and God is creator, is it possible for God to make a rock so heavy even he can't lift? What a stupid question. And yet, there are all kinds of questions that will come at you It's good to remember that when someone challenges the truth of the gospel, when someone challenges the truth of God and his word, it's actually not you that they're challenging, though you might be the one up in that scenario. But they're going above your head and they're challenging Jesus himself. It's so easy, isn't it? When a question like this is asked, it's so easy to get flustered It's so easy to get angry. It's so easy to just kind of blow your top and to lose your self-control. But as we walk through Jesus' answer, we'll see he maintained self-control and he also wasn't going to play their game. If someone comes to you and they're they're actually interested, you can tell, can't you? You can usually spot when someone is humble. When someone genuinely wants to know the answer to their question, at the same time, you can usually spot when someone's trying to set you up. Those two scenarios, a humble question and an antagonistic trap, they require two different approaches. The humble question is one that you sit down and you talk, maybe you talk over a meal, you show them the love of Christ, you work with them through their question, but the antagonistic trap you shut it down. And this is exactly what Jesus does. We've seen the antagonistic question. Let's look secondly at the authoritative answer. Verses 24 to 27. The authoritative answer. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So first of all, the first thing that Jesus does from the very beginning is to confront their error. He doesn't soft pedal it, does he? He doesn't say, well, guys, I know that there are differing views within Israel. I know that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, and I know that you guys don't believe in the resurrection, but I just want to take a few moments to sit down with you and to talk about the proof of the resurrection That's not what he does. He says, you're wrong. In today's culture, it's not so right to tell someone they're wrong, is it? But wrong is wrong. Now, there are different ways to go about telling someone they're wrong, obviously. And there are different times to tell someone that they're wrong. Again, if it's a humble question and they're wrong... Well, you could probably work with that to get them to at least see the truth. But if it's an antagonistic attack to you, you're wrong. You're wrong. But notice, Jesus doesn't get mad at them. He just gets real with them. He tells them that they're wrong because of two things. First of all, they don't know the scriptures. And secondly, they don't know the power of God. How well do you think that would have been received? To to them, Jesus is stepping onto their turf. And he's going to tell them that they're wrong because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. How dare he? Jesus understands because he is the word of God in flesh, the importance of the word of God and the character of God. That when someone assaults God and when someone assaults the hope of the saints, 
it's not time to lay down. It's time to stand up. It's time to call it out. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls it out. He says they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. He begins in verse 25 by laying out what he means when he says to them they don't know the power of God. Verse 25 says, for when they rise from the dead, not if they rise, but when they rise from the dead. Notice, Jesus does not take this as a hypothetical. Jesus treats the resurrection for the fact that it is. He doesn't condescend to them. He doesn't say to them, now I know you don't believe this, but I believe that when this happens, he doesn't do that. He says, when this happens. See, when it comes to issues regarding the scriptures, Christian, you have the authority to stand on the scriptures, to tell someone when they contradict the scriptures, you're wrong. And then to tell them that when the scriptures are fulfilled and then just go right along with it. I'm all for apologetics. I'm all for understanding scientific reasons, though I'm a dummy when it comes to science, so I just say what the Bible says. Here's the reality. When it comes to defending the faith, you don't need to be a biology professor. You just need to know your Bible. Is it science that's the power of God unto salvation? No, it's the gospel. And again, I'm not trying to undermine that. But just because someone says, I don't believe your Bible, does not mean you allow them to take your Bible out of your hands. You stick with the Bible. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But this is not something that we can walk away from, ever. No matter how foolish it may appear, we stick with the Bible. So Jesus just flat states it. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He highlights both men, marry, and women, nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now he's got them again. Because you remember what, one of the things that Luke highlights for us, another thing that they don't believe next to the resurrection, they don't believe in angels. So not only is Jesus telling them they're wrong, not only is he stating that the matter of fact, the resurrection as a matter of fact, but now he's sort of sticking it to them in another way. They're like angels. What does that mean? Well, they don't procreate anymore in heaven. One of the many things that the, the, the Sadducees had wrong was that they limited God to the boundaries of their own logic. If they couldn't understand how God could make it work, then they didn't believe it. Which actually then makes who God? It makes you God. If you can set the boundaries for God then all of a sudden you seem to think that you have more authority than God has. And so their limitation for God was their own logic, which is why Jesus says to them, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand what God's intention for marriage is, and you don't understand what God is able to do and going to do in the resurrection." They think that marriage and, and, and everything from this life is going to be a one-for-one one carryover into the next life. Now, again, they don't actually believe there is a next life, but they're thinking that that's the way that the teaching is presented. The next life is just, you know, you, you die, you, you get back up, and then you just go right back and clock in to work. You just go right back to your house and spend time with your family. But Jesus says, no, 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 actually, it's going to be even better than that. In heaven, there's not going to be a need for marriage anymore. Because do you remember what the Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is? It's a picture of Christ and his church. So in the next life, 
when Christ and his church are finally united together, we'll have the thing that the sign points to. We won't need the picture anymore. Now, I just want you to know, Katie and I have a special deal worked out with God so that we'll be able to still be married. And I would encourage you to work that out also. I don't believe that that means you won't know your spouse anymore. I think you'll know everything that you knew from this life, but I think that what that means is that heaven will be so much better than you could ever imagine that you actually won't even want to be married anymore. And honestly, I can't fathom that. I can't fathom it. I cannot imagine that I will not want to be married to my precious wife. But I know, based on the scriptures and what it teaches, that it must be better, and so I embrace it. But the Sadducees, they decided that if I can't imagine it, it can't be real. And isn't that the foundation of faithlessness? If I can't figure it out, it's not real. What is that? It's a denial of the power of God. There are times in life when we may deal with a particular sin or we may deal with a particular loved one who's trapped in a particular sin and we may be tempted to think to ourselves, I don't know if this is ever going to change. I don't know if they are ever going to change. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of the power of God. Now, we don't know what God will do, but we know what God can do, don't we? Let me, let me get real specific to the here and now. In just a little over a month, my family and I will be heading out. And we're still in the process of looking for a pastor, a senior pastor. And we're praying and we're searching and we're working. You might be tempted to think, who's going to want to come to this little country church? Who are we? I'll tell you who's going to want to come. The man that God wants to come. The man that God sends here. So brothers and sisters, do not forget about the power of God. Is God not able to overcome the boundaries that we can see? Did Israel get to the Red Sea and go, oh, shoot, we better go back? Well, they kind of did. (laughs) But God told Moses, put your staff in that water. And then it parted. And God dried it up. And God said, okay, now walk across. And they walked across quite quickly because behind them was Pharaoh and his army. And then God said, this is my translation, it's okay, I got this. They get across, God waits for Pharaoh and his army to get into the dried up bed and then he says, see you later and crashes it back down. Brothers and sisters, we must never limit the power of God. We don't always know what he will do, but we know what he can do. The the Sadducees, however, limited the power of God, and they thought that this supposed idea of resurrection was going to look the very same way, and Jesus corrects them. It's not going to look like this. So not only does Jesus confront their error and just call them out point blank, but then not only were they wrong about the power of God, they were wrong about the scriptures. They did not know the scriptures. And so Jesus confronts their error and then also he appeals to the scriptures, verses 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, so he's dealt with the issue of marriage, now he deals with the greater issue of resurrection. And now let's talk about the resurrection, Sadducees. And let me quote the Bible for you, Sadducees. And not just the Bible, but let me quote the portion of the Bible that you believe in, Sadducees. 
have you not read in the book of Moses? Which was the ultimate blow. The book of Moses was their book. They knew it backwards and forwards, or so they thought. So Jesus, haven't you read the book of Moses? Don't you know anything about what Moses taught? In the passage about the bush, which was the familiar way that they quoted the scriptures because they didn't have chapter and verse numbers, and it's pretty normal for us to say, yeah, you remember the story, for instance, of the Red Sea. So Jesus takes them back to the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, and he says how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus presents a question of his own right back to them, and it's a question not about a hypothetical scenario, but it's a question about what the Bible actually says. See, not only do we not let someone take the Bible out of our hands, but we then use it. This is what the Bible says. It's not what I say, it's what the Bible says. And Jesus builds his case on the reality that when God spoke to Moses, he did not say, yeah, I was the God of Abraham, but he died. I was the God of Isaac, but he died. And then there was a third one, Jacob, and I really thought it was going to go well, but then he died too. Jesus finishes with, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus builds his argument about God's pronouncement to Moses, who came after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is not past tense the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which tells us Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. And they're waiting for something. What, it is, what is it that they're waiting for? The resurrection. They're waiting for the day that they get the body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of its seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from heaven, a man of from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are waiting for. And brothers and sisters, that is what every saint who has died believing the promise is waiting for. see, 
Jesus goes after the Sadducees the way that he does, number one, because they attack the nature and character of God, and number two, because they assault the hope of the saints. And Jesus says, you don't mess with my God and you don't mess with my people. You see, it isn't just a matter of do we get up or not after we die. This is a matter of hope right here and right now, isn't it? Certainly of hoping that we will see our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord. But also that we ourselves will go on to be with the Lord and be changed. These bodies, this man of dust that we bear now will be changed. Some of you here are afraid of death. And I get it. But for the Christian, death is a promotion. I don't mean to be insensitive in any way. But the reality is, this body is breaking down. You know it, and I know it. But if you hope in Jesus Christ then you will have a body that will never break down again. It will never feel the effects of sin again. There will never be a shocking diagnosis when you go to the doctor, and in fact, there will not be doctors anymore. That's the hope that the Christian has right here, right now. So let me ask you, do you have that hope? Do you believe that because Jesus paid for your sins and rose from the grave that you too will rise from the grave? And do you live life as though what is here and what is seen is most important? Or do you live life as though the citizen, your citizenship in heaven and the kingdom of God are most important? And therefore, you take everything that is on the table in this life and you say, Lord, I'm all in. It's yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. You can have it all, Lord. Because none of it compares to what I'm getting one day in glory. See, it wasn't just an argument about what happens after you die. It was an assault on God and on the hope that the saints have. And so Jesus says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Brothers and sisters, any time the nature and character of God or the hope of the saints are assaulted, that is an issue where we need to contend for the faith. That is an issue where we say, no, you're wrong, and the Bible says this. That is an issue that Jesus is with you in, and it is an issue that they may seem as though they're attacking you, but they're really attacking the Savior himself. They try to cut the legs out from under the Christian hope, the hope that Jesus has come to give his people, but Jesus swats it down, just like he does every time. The truth is that it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we too will be raised. And that hope of the future affects right here, right now. Peter calls it a living hope. So do you hold that living hope? It's really a yes or no question. If you're you're tempted to say, well, I don't know, I think I do. Well, if you think you do, then the next question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if the answer to that is yes, then you hold that hope. Don't doubt yourself and don't doubt the scriptures. You hold that hope if you believe in Jesus Christ. But if the answer is no, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, then you have no hope. But if you would repent of your sins right here, right now, and you would entrust yourself to Jesus for the 
penalty that you deserved and his resurrection validating his sacrifice, then my friend, congratulations, you can have that hope as well. John says this about everyone who has that hope. 1 John 3, 1 to 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Friends, we are waiting for the moment that Jesus will change us because we will see him. That is the hope that we hold in Jesus. And that is why Jesus contended for the faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your tenacity. We thank you that you did not back down from your enemies until it was time for you to keep silent so that you could go like a lamb to the slaughter. Had you defended yourself, Lord, there would have never been a cross. But had there never been a cross, we could never be forgiven. We rejoice at your wisdom. We rejoice at your authority and at your power. We rejoice in your gospel. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see more and more clearly the beauty of the gospel. And specifically, in light of this passage, we pray, Lord, that you would show us the hope that we have coming to us. We know that that's not a pie in the sky, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good idea but we know that we won't make it through the difficulties of this life if we don't know that something better is coming. So like the faithful saints who have gone before us, even those who have gone to their martyrdom, looking to the joy and the glory of the resurrection, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow them. Lord, we ask that you would bless the word, bless the seed of the word that has been sown today even cause it to bring new life to those who don't know you. Open their eyes, Lord, that they might see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.